0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 46. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Christina Souza Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Good day to you, Dr. Wollman.
1: Greetings, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wollman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel Each week, through the healthcare galaxy, searching for ways towards optimal health. And uh, based on the sound of your voice, how's your health?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's one of those things where it's this uh, gray day here in L.A., and uh, through the weekend, it was gorgeous, but you know, this uh, little, little whatever viruses or little bacteria that run around and well one got me
1: (laughs) (laughs) the predators
0: the predators yes our favorite yeah but it's 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 good it's good it's uh you know you know me i keep plowing through it so and wonderfully enough my child as well he's off in school low-grade fever still plugging away so all good
1: Passing on the virus to all his friends.
0: Of course. Excellent. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, can't have it alone.
1: It takes a village.
0: There you go. (laughs) You know, as I serve breakfast to all these kids in the morning, and they're all hacking and coughing and sneezing, and, you know, some know how to cover up and some don't, and I'm wiping their desks off with the little wipes and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) teaching them to wipe their hands before they eat and after they eat. (laughs) amazing (laughs) it is it is amazing it's amazing that they don't automatically do it even by the age of five or six you know so it really tells us that uh the the discipline in the household uh, doesn't have that hence why a lot of people tend to i'm assuming get very sick during the whole year
1: well i i think that the more and more people that watch this show the less and less people will be sick what do you think
0: Oh yes. I hope, and, truly and I hope think
1: so. Yeah, and I think if we watch Trinity of Life and Flowing with Anatara, boy, think how healthy the world will be.
0: We'll just find that optimal health.
1: That's right. We could do it we could do a study. Maybe we'll get the Nobel Prize in television.
0: In, te- <laughs> in IP, internet IP television. IP television, yeah, IP I was television. Say.
1: <laughs> We could get the first one.
0: Yes, there you go. <laughs>
1: So interestingly today, uh, again, I would like to have the opportunity just to speak uh, and chat about a couple of topics. And I called it potpourri in the past, but I, I thought, uh, what does that have to do with Magical Medical Tour? Uh, <laughs> I had no idea why I picked that. It just sounded right. So I've, I ran a contest. I had a contest. And uh, the winning name was Inside the Doctor's Bag. Mm. hey so i wasn't
0: part of that contest wait a minute what, what are you talking about <laughs> <No>?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well uh, sometimes i i run contests only in my mind
0: oh i see i see with the two one standing on one shoulder and the other one standing on the other no, one right oh
1: no no i have unlimited amounts oh. I
0: don't just,
1: but uh this uh, inside the doctor's bag was the winning choice uh, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. I may have another contest and you may be included in the next there one. There
0: you go. <laughs> I like inside the doctor's bag. That's good.
1: Do you like that? Yes. Better. Yes.
0: But my first thought was, do doctors carry bags anymore? Well, maybe to put their iPads in. <laughs> actually,
1: actually they do. Uh, there are many doctors. Uh, sometimes as we talked about, uh, with Dr. Angelo Salvucci in emergency medicine, I think a lot of us carry some things in our, uh, cars or trucks or whatever, you know, a little kit of some kind a first aid kit, maybe a stethoscope, a few other things. Mm. Uh, but, uh, and, and doctors do make house calls and sometimes they have their own special, you know, stethoscope that they like to use and a few other little things, depending on the specialty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there, there are little tools of the trade. Right,
0: Right. So
1: yes, yes, the, uh, some of them do, but, uh, Probably not as many as did in the past, but I thought it would be a, a good name anyway.
0: How about Doctor's Backpack?
1: The Doctor's Backpack?
0: Yeah, I see so many carrying backpacks now. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> well, if I haven't, we'll see how this uh, one plays out. And if there's not a great response, we'll have another contest and you can enter that.
0: Okay, shall do.
1: <laughs> into the contest. Uh, and we'll see. So today I have a few different things that I want to talk about again. Um, uh, three different topics. Uh, one is sort of in the idea of helping the doctor make the diagnosis. A second one uh, I'm going to title, Didgerie Poo. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing already.
0: I am because I've, I've just been, been um, trying to get my son off the word poo. And here you are. Here is uh, Dr. Woman saying didgerie poo. And it's like, uh-oh, I guess he's not going to hear this one for a little while. Uh,
1: well, I, I think you have influence on the editing. <laughs> and then the uh, third part will be uh, an honoring.
0: Ooh.
1: Uh So we'll get to each of those uh, with a little surprise. Last week or in a former episode, uh, I talked about helping with your doctor's appointment. And uh, one of the things that's very important is to be as concise as possible and uh, accurate and complete as possible. Doctors, when we first started in medical school and we learned how to come in and meet a patient, uh, then we would take a a history and the history that we learned when we were in medical school actually took about three hours. There were many parts to a history. There's the history of the chief complaint, history of a present illness, uh, a social history, a review of systems in the history, uh, Past medical history a number of things and and the, the theory was that uh, the doctors that started out uh, with good medicine and were the pioneers felt that uh, the better history you took, the more chance you had of a of a diagnosis and a correct diagnosis and They say that if you Uh, take a really good history, you should be about 90, 95% sure of what the person has. And then you just add to that with the physical examination and then maybe some blood tests or x-rays, things like that. You should should pretty much have it. Problem now is obviously, as you know, there are very few doctors around that are taking a three-hour history. Usually the history is about five minutes or maybe the whole time that you're with the doctor is seven to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. In some cases that's different. Many doctors are spending good amounts of time with people. But So the important important point here is the more things that you can do to help your doctor in that five to seven minutes uh, with the diagnosis, uh, the better off you are. And I spoke about uh, in one of our episodes journaling a medical problem if something happens uh, start journaling it if you have a new symptom or a sign or some kind of a growth that you should start uh, taking some notes on it and i wanted to uh, talk about that more because people asked me about that uh, they wanted to know um, can you be a little more specific with that and what to do and it's a i'm glad they did that because uh, in my career i've had people that have come to me that have been uh, very obsessive over taking the notes, and they would come in with 12 or 15 handwritten pages of one symptom or one uh, set of symptoms. So in this particular case, I'm trying to say don't don't get carried away with it, but just get some specific points. And one of the main things that we want to talk about is pain. Uh, it's a It's usually subjective, meaning the person has the pain, the doctor can't really feel the pain, so you have to figure out the pain and give information to us so that we can figure out, is it a bone, is it a ligament, is it a nerve, is it an organ rupturing, all of these things that come into play, and realizing that all illnesses really have some kind of Uh, a set, a sequence of events that happens uh, where something, for example, uh, a person that has appendicitis. Well, at the very beginning, when they're normal, they don't have anything. But at some point, something starts where the appendix gets irritated. But because of the way the nervous system is, you don't really feel the direct place where it hurts, which is in the right lower abdomen in most people. The first symptom that people usually get, is a little bit of nausea and an upset stomach high up in their uh, abdominal area where the uh, sternum or breastbone comes down. Mm. And, and then over time, different things happen. And then eventually uh, the pain gets worse and it becomes very specific and then everyone can make the diagnosis. But pain changes and, and also it feels differently to different people. So I want to talk about a little bit of documentation of pain that you can do for yourself. Sometimes a pain may come once while you're doing something, you're walking and you get a little pain in your chest going down your arm and you have to describe that pain. But then you stop and rest for a few minutes and it goes away and then the pain is gone and you can't describe it anymore. So there's a lot of things that I want to talk about in the description of pain, how you should Journal this a little bit if you do have to go in to see your doctor now, obviously, if you fall and uh, break your arm and the bone is sticking out, uh, you oh. don't have to say too much, you could say it hurts here, doctor, <laughs> and they got it but it's it's some of those vague pains, like a chest pain or a headache or an abdominal pain, mm-hmm. that could be uh, a little more of an enigma at least at the beginning, so one of the first things to do is just write down you know the time, when you had it, the day and date, the hour, things like that. The second thing is the location, and just kind of describe it best you can. Uh, you could draw a picture so that you'll remember, picture the body, and you'll remember where it is. Um, and then, over time, if the pain never comes back, don't worry about it, but if it comes back or if it changes, it starts out. You feel a pain in your chest and then you feel a pain in your, uh, elbow, you know, the pain may change a little bit. So it's important to talk about the location and if it changes at any time or where it goes. And if it happens and goes away and then comes back a few days later, is it in the same location? Does it do the, the same exact thing? So location and change of location. The next thing is to talk about the intensity of the pain. Again, we don't feel the pain. So it's important to tell us. We usually give the 0 to 10 scale. And most of the time, it's very important to be careful because most of the time there might be a little drama around the pain and you want to explain to the doctor in the best sense that we can understand it, that it really hurts you a lot. So you go, oh, it's a 10. Or you get a little funny and you go, it's a 12 out of 10. (laughs) Or or a 15. I I suggest that you try to be a little more accurate than that because if you you say to us it's a 10 on the possible highest scale of 10, that means that it's not going to get any worse. And if we're trying to treat you and we figure this is a 10, we may treat you in a way uh, that it appears to be a 10. But if it gets worse, you've already got your maximum treatment. So try and be as honest as you can. Uh, with this. It also gives us indications, and this comes in with the dynamics of the pain, too. This is another part of it. Pain uh, comes on in different ways for different problems. For example, uh, giving birth, having uh, contractions. Uh, You may have no pain at all for a few moments, and then suddenly you have a pain, and it's a two, but in one second, it's up to an eight. And then it goes back down to a zero again uh, after two or three seconds or five seconds or half a minute. And those are the things that are important to say. Or does the pain start instantly at a 10 and stay steady at a 10 from the moment you got it to the moment you're seeing your doctor? It never changes. Does it go up and down? Does it change? Does it uh, get more intense, then go down and then get more intense again? These are all things that will help us to hone in on a diagnosis, because in each part of the body, there are many things that could happen. Take the kidney, for example. You could have a cyst on a kidney, or you could have an infection in a kidney, or you could have a kidney stone. Each of those presents with a different pain pattern. I also think it's important to describe the pain, and this is where you can get very creative. Uh, When people are having a heart attack, sometimes they will describe it as It's like an elephant sitting on my chest or I have my chest in a vice grip. People that are having uh, sciatic pain or nerve pain going down their leg from the back sometimes will say, it feels like a burning ice pick. So get creative with it, but make sure that within your creativity, it's something that the doctor can get a sense of. It's also important to talk about accompanying symptoms for example we talked about the uh, person with the appendicitis Uh, when you get the pain uh, do you have nausea or vomiting do you have a fever or chills do you have uh, diarrhea or constipation Uh, these are accompanying symptoms if you're having pain in your chest are you short of breath are you sweating Uh, do you feel cold All of these things look at accompanying symptoms when uh, you're having the pain. Uh, Also, it's very important to talk about the possibility of what you do to aggravate the pain or to relieve the pain. Uh, If you are having, again, abdominal pain and you push on your abdomen and it hurts, that's an important point for us to know. Um, if you're having chest pain, for example, and you're walking, you're taking a hike and you decide, okay, I'm having chest pain. I better stop for a few minutes and sit down. So, and then the pain goes away in three to five minutes. So that would be something that you would say, uh, I was having the chest pain while I was exercising or walking, but when I sat down, I relieved it relieved the pain. And after things that you do to Uh, aggravate the pain, then you do look at things that relieve the pain. If uh, you talk about um, a back pain, you may say, well, if I sit down or lie down for five minutes on a pack of ice, or if I stretch my iliopsoas muscle, uh, or if I do a uh, downward dog, uh, that seems to relieve it. So the things that uh, have to do with aggravation and relief. And the final thing that I would say uh, in the discussion of this, certainly you can do many things, but trying to keep it, again, concise and quick to give us that picture, is any prior history of this type of pain. You know, one of the things that uh, sometimes I will ask someone after I've taken this long history, and I'm trying to figure out really what it is. I'm trying to put a number of things together in my differential diagnosis. And I finally asked the question, have you ever had this pain before? And then they go, oh yes, my doctor told me it was a kidney stone.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I Well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> so taking the history is good, but it's important uh, when you're giving this information to the doctor, if you've ever had this pain before, or if you've never had it before. So those would be a few of the things that I would say to people. Clearly, you you can be a little more creative and think of other things that might accompany it. You know, when we talk about things that aggravate it or relieve it, um, did you take a pain medication? Did you take a nausea medication or a, an herbal tea, something? And uh, did that relieve it? Or did it make it worse? You, want, you kind of want to also think about the timing of when this happens. You know, for example, if you suddenly come down with symptoms of a headache and runny nose and a cough, uh, it's a good idea to remember, oh, yeah, two days ago I was uh, feeding kids at the school and there were a bunch of kids coughing. Or uh, if, you were, if you're having abdominal discomfort uh, with nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and fever and chills and you remember, oh, two, day, two days ago I ate some raw oysters at a street stand. You know, these are kind of things that that may help us in the process of figuring out what's wrong with you. So that's my little part on helping with the journal and helping the doctor. And what this does, uh, I must say, is that if the doctor is unclear what you have, uh, then their natural instinct after they take the history and the physical is to start ordering tests. These are blood tests, urine tests, uh, special imaging studies. And the less sure they are, the more possibility of things they will order. So in helping the doctor, it also helps you, uh, saving expense, saving time, having to go to one place where they may do imaging, another place where they may do blood drawing, laboratories. So by helping the doctor in this way, being more aware of your own signs and symptoms and Illness, uh, you may decrease the expense and time and energy you have to put into finding out what's wrong, and you'll be more quickly on the road to healing.
0: Mm. I love that. I love that journaling. Um, I've I've done it since I was really young because I was always so sick, and I just I for my child it's great because you know sometimes they only have the on those spurts of of high fever and then it goes away in 24 hours and they're not really coughing or anything and you know in the Chinese it's like oh their bones are just expanding, it's like growing pains right? But it, it's really I've loved tracking it and I love being able to see you know when during the year and what's interesting is like with my child it's like almost every three months on the button something comes up hmm. yeah it's it's almost like a rhythm that that the body goes in and out of and it's nothing major, major knockwood good yet, uh, you know, uh, uh, away from like an ear infection once a while back. But, you know, it's like, you know, a little coughing, maybe a little runny nose with a high fever. And then it disappears sometimes in 24 hours and then it's gone. But it's so great to be able to track all that from when he was a baby.
1: Yeah, I, you may uh, start finding things that most parents, of course, you're not like most parents, uh, although, hopefully, at some point, uh, more parents will be uh, that uh, conscientious about their process. Not to the point of obsession.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it, I mean, it's really simple to be able to write down a time and the uh, level of fever or, you know, a date, a time. And then under that one date, you have all the different times that you've taken a fever and what I've given him. It's actually very easy.
1: I think yeah and it and it pays <laughs> off it, it pays off, I think that you may sometime find that uh that cycle that he 's in might be some kind of a hormonal cycle mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. his immune system seems to be very powerful for a certain amount of time, and then it depletes a little bit, and you could start looking what time of the year is it, what season is it, and then of course, you could certainly go into. Uh, different types of medicine the traditional asian medicine where different organs have different hours of the day Ooh. and uh, that they become more powerful or more weak and you can look at a number of things and there's no end to the process
0: Ooh. oh that would be fun I'd like <laughs> to have a little time to do that that would be great
1: yeah even organs even have compass directions
0: <laughs> that's great
1: yeah, well, you know, people that do qigong, uh, sometimes if you're doing some uh, a qigong exercise to improve a certain organ or to increase qi or decrease qi or congestion or whatever needs to be done at that time, uh, some of the real practitioners will actually face in a certain direction at a certain hour of the day where they mm. believe that they get the most benefit out of it.
0: Hmm. Oh, well. See how many different areas that we stuff to venture into.
1: I know it is a magical medical tour. <laughs> so, anything else you want to talk about with the journal? Or, oh, we can no, go I on love,
0: to- I just had to say that I I love the journal. I love, I love being able to write that down, not just for my child, but for you know, for all of us. It's, I think, it's very important to do that. And it's uh, nice, uh, nice to be able to present it, like to say the date and the. And what was going on on that date when something has just begun, and you know the little symptoms, quick, easy, it's great. And yep. now you, those those of you who have those smartphones now, you can even dictate it into your phone now. It's that easy.
1: I have to change my whole way of thinking right now. No more <laughs> journey. Just push function, function, or, <laughs> and you have uh, Siri and Alfred and all of these apps that are taking care of all of our needs.
0: There you go. (laughs) That's
1: great. And pretty soon you can probably just email it or I text it or message it into your doctor and they can message back to you. It's your appendix. Take it out. Use the app for surgery.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Schedule your surgery now. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting that you say that. We're going to be talking uh, in the last topic uh, today. We're going to be talking a little bit about scheduling surgery. Ooh. So, nice segue there,
0: Ooh.
1: or a little bit of foreshadowing. So, as a, as a help to all of our viewers, uh, I like to bring up different topics, and I want to talk about uh, strokes a little bit for a few minutes, and this is where we talk about the didgeridoo, And I wonder if you can connect the two for me. Didgeridoo, and strokes. My guess is yeah, that that's uh,
0: well. Uh, the, the the didgeridoo. What what is that that instrument? That's all that's coming in my head. When you is it the didgeridoo? The didgeridoo.
1: Yes, exactly. Right? That's the
0: instrument. Right. Right. That is that that one blows into to create that amazing primal sound.
1: The amazing primal sound. It's and, an Aboriginal instrument. Oh,
0: it's so fantastic. And you play that, don't you?
1: I do, and I'm going to talk about that. But let me see if I can make that connection Mm. for you right now. Let's talk about strokes. We all know the word, but uh, we're not always sure what it means. Uh, The brain, and we'll talk about a brain type of stroke right now. The brain has many parts to it, and each of the cells in each part have a function. If you're in the motor section of the brain, the cells in the motor section uh, help Create movement. They can help you move your thumb uh, or your arm or a leg or your head and neck. That's movement. Uh, There are other parts of the brain that have to do with memory, parts of the brain that have to do, as you know, with speech, uh, have to do with listening and understanding. So each part of the brain has cells that are functioning. And each of these cells, as we've spoken about, has a blood supply that brings. fluid and oxygen and nutrients so that the cells can continue to function uh, the way they're supposed to. And we've had many talks about that uh, in the episodes of Magical Medical Tour. So if uh, one of two things can happen, if the blood supply to a certain part of the brain gets uh, cut off because of, say, a blood clot or a narrowing of the artery that's bringing the uh, blood to that part of the brain, whatever part of the brain that is, it will stop functioning. So if there's a blood vessel that uh, goes to the speech center of the brain and there's a blood clot in that area, then you may have either some difficulty speaking or you may not be able to speak at all. Your words may be slurred depending on the extent and what portion of the area. Uh, You may have uh, things where you know the word in your mind, but you can't say it. All sorts of things can happen. And if it's in another area, whatever area that is, that's where the problem occurs. So that's uh, where somebody gets a blood clot. The other type of a stroke is what we call a hemorrhagic stroke, where there's so much pressure on the insides of the blood vessel that the blood vessel bursts and blood starts leaking out into this uh, cavity of the brain, which is surrounded by a very hard skull, so the brain can't really expand too much. And this increasing pressure can cause uh, more hemorrhage, and then it can cause problems uh, blocking the blood supply. And again, more things will happen. So these are the two types of strokes, uh, a blood clot or a hemorrhagic stroke. And uh, one of the things that uh, is important is to be able to recognize when either you or someone with you is having a stroke. So some of the things that you might want to get somebody to do are to do just a, a few following of directions. First of all, ask them to speak. If they can't speak and they were speaking a few moments ago, that's very concerning. Also ask them to smile that, that will show that they have facial muscles that can move. And you look at the face and you see if one side of the face is going up in a normal smile and the other side of the face is not doing anything. That's also an important sign. And then ask them to move their arms or, and move their legs. And if they, can't speak, one side of their face might be paralyzed and they can't move an arm or the the arm is clumsy or the leg is clumsy. It just doesn't feel right. These are signs of a potential stroke and you need to then call 911 and get them to a doctor very quickly. This is an incident where you have to be careful. You know where we talk about uh, if somebody's having chest pain Mm -hmm. uh, that they should have an aspirin. Well, if you give someone an aspirin because they're having uh, these symptoms, they may be having symptoms from the hemorrhagic stroke. By giving the aspirin, uh, you may cause more bleeding. So I wouldn't uh, necessarily suggest giving aspirin unless you specifically know that this person does have a history of uh, clots in the brain, and maybe that's something you should discuss with your doctor. So those are the types of strokes and those are some of the signs and symptoms of strokes and those are the things that you can look at to see if someone is having a stroke. But that still doesn't answer the didgeridoo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go with the didgeridoo.
1: Do you have Into a Didgeridoo, <laughs> exactly. One time that people are found to have Strokes and increased incidence of strokes is when they're in the bathroom, having a bowel movement, and straining. Ooh. So this is it's a there's a maneuver that we do in medicine, and please don't practice this at home. Don't do this unless you're right in uh, sight of your doctor, and they're asking you to do it. It's called a Valsalva maneuver, where you take in a deep breath and you try to exert as hard as possible. And you do not let that breath out. And you see this in non-professional athletes or people that are trying to strain to lift something heavy or move a couch uh, or to push something or to have a bowel movement where they strain.
0: Um, oh, excuse me, Glenn. Yes. Can you do me a favor and just uh, toggle your video because your sound has gotten a little funny?
1: I will toggle. Thank you. And tell me if I'm sounding better. Oh, much better. Okay. Okay. So you
0: were saying about this move, uh, if you could start over about this movement that the doctor might have you do in the doctor's office.
1: Yes. Do not do this at home. It's called a valsalva maneuver, but it's something that people do naturally uh, without training when they are trying to strain at something, lifting a heavy object Mm. or pushing a couch or having a bowel movement where you seem to take a deep breath and bear down and uh, exert yourself, but you don't exhale that breath. Now, when we see athletes that are boxers or martial artists or professional weightlifters or professional athletes, you always see that when they exert, they are exhaling mm-hmm. or letting out a hard breath. You know, especially uh, a martial artist, they they do a kiai or some kind of a loud noise to let the breath out and sometimes the, theoretically to scare the opponent but also uh to get more energy but what happens when you do this straining without taking without letting the breath out is it increases your blood pressure and it increases the pressure in in and around the brain and the spinal cord yeah. and This has the potential to cause a stroke. And also at the same time, uh, usually when you're holding your breath, uh, then you're not taking in oxygen. So lack of oxygen and increasing uh, pressure Mm -hmm. and uh, increasing the pressure inside the brain also all have the potential. Now, this not necessarily will happen to the average normal person, but certainly it's a good thing to be thinking about. But for people that have a family history of a stroke, or have had a stroke in the past, you know, a mother or father who have had a history or a sibling that's had a history. This is something you should be very careful about uh, straining in the bathroom. And we can talk about, you know, what you need to do about your digestive system. That's a whole other category. But so this is where I say that one of the things that you have to do to make sure that you're not increasing that pressure in your brain and, in your blood vessels is to be exhaling when you're trying to strain in the bathroom. And one of the things that you might consider doing would be playing an instrument Mm. like, like the didgeridoo. Now you certainly could do it. You can sing, you could play a harmonica, playing the drums won't necessarily help (laughs) or or the accordion.
0: It sounds like a wind instrument of some sort that you're talking about. (laughs)
1: And that's why I recommend the didgeridoo. It's a, it's actually a fantastic instrument. It's an aboriginal instrument. It's one of the oldest instruments on the planet. There's a lot of great history about it. Uh, they used to make it from uh, uh, indigenous uh, plants. But they're
0: so big.
1: They're, they're huge. Little, the, some of them are huge, but they come in different sizes. And you can actually make your own. You can get uh, one of those... Uh, tubings that they use you know the white tubing that's used you can make a five foot one at just about a two inch diameter one and a half inch diameter you put a uh a mouthpiece on it made of bees honey or beeswax sorry uh and then you learn how to play it and it teaches you a number of things uh number one it gets you breathing and you do lots of breathing exercises number two it's very meditative and number three it teaches you a lot about yourself i had a great deal of problem learning how to play the didgeridoo because one of the things that's required is circular breathing. And that's a term that says you have to breathe in, take a breath in while you're breathing out at the same time. Now, as a scientist, I know you can't do that. So I couldn't believe in my mind that I would ever be able to do that. So I had to, through practicing and through (laughs) losing my mind, had to (laughs) I thought you'd laugh at that. <laughs> uh, Look in the bag.
0: To, right.
1: <laughs> had to learn. <laughs> yes, that's funny. Had to learn how to let go of my preconceived uh, notions. And when I was able to let go, that helped. Uh, and then I was able to learn how to do the circular breathing. It Also, it's a great connection because it has a whole spirituality to it. The original instrument uh, was based on, the aboriginals felt that the snake was their creator God. And it's interesting that we're speaking of this as we're coming to the year of the snake, but the, uh, creator God, the snake, the didgeridoo represented that. So when anybody played the didgeridoo, they became part of the creator process. They joined in and became their own creator, making different types of sounds, uh, and people have their own original sounds so you get a creativity part to it so i really like that and for a very long time through eons only men were allowed to uh, touch or play the didgeridoo now of course anyone can play it so i think that's a even more important reason but so that's my thing right there talking about strokes and connecting it to the didgeridoo <laughs> and playing an instrument but i would say to be careful because You start playing an instrument, you start enjoying it, you may end up sitting there on the seat for a very long period of time, (laughs) and that's not necessarily good for the muscles or bones in the back of your leg, so you have to be careful of of that part of it. And also, choose an instrument, unless you live alone, choose an instrument that won't be too irritating to other people. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, at least so, there'll be music coming out from the bathroom.
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And uh, you know, there's actually the bathroom is a uh we could do a whole show on the bathroom of things that the dangers in the bathroom and things that you can do in the bathroom in the shower uh that are healing actually. Uh and protective <clears throat> many things we it's kind of interesting. All the things that you can do. You can exercise in the bathroom, meditate in the bathroom. Oh yes. Uh, s- stretching during the shower. You could do your neti pot during the shower. All sorts of things. It takes on a whole new experience.
0: <laughs> That's gonna be the next one.
1: Yeah, we'll have to do that. We'll have to uh I don't know. Medicine
0: we'll... in the in the bathroom.
1: That's right. Bathroom meds. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder though that'll be better as a I don't know could we listen to that as a podcast or do we have to have visuals here for this <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we could we could always post some pictures of the of the germs that run around our bathrooms at the same time,
1: oh my God,
0: yes, those visuals would be fun, don't you think I get a few bounces out of me
1: yeah, definitely <laughs> uh also, I would like to um Just remind everyone, we are talking about the didgeridoo now, but the important part is getting back to the stroke and being careful, protecting yourself uh, from a stroke and realizing the signs and symptoms and helping people. So do you have any questions about that part?
0: Uh, it's uh, You know, the interesting part is uh, a lot of people say that they don't, they didn't even know that it was coming on. Mm-hmm. And 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 is that usually the case that you know they might feel a little numbness and the next thing they know they say that they can't move. Um, a lot of people I'd spoken to, and then uh, I do or, know, or they
1: can't, or they can't say at all that they can't move.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. So it was, it's almost like, like uh, it seems, uh, strokes have always seemed so mysterious to me. The way they sort of creep in. Um, I do know of an acquaintance who actually felt something was off Uh, you know she was a single woman living at home and she was uh, um, aware enough of her own body to be able to call her son and being in New York of course you know call her son to say call an ambulance for me and I'm at home and of course the son is like what's going on she goes I don't know but something's happening call an ambulance now and so he did, and she was able to specify which hospital, etc. And uh by the time they got there, she was almost full into her stroke. So so that was uh the only person I knew of that could actually what that was so aware of their own body knowing that things were seemed to be shutting down. Because I, I think by the time she became conscious again, uh her head was shaved, she had gone through surgery, she had <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know so but as i said you know if she wasn't that um that conscious at that time she may not have made it at all that's how severe it was
1: yeah uh, strokes are pretty uh impressive and uh, they can be life or limb threatening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know lots of things can happen and part of the problem is that because it's affecting the brain there might be parts of the brain that uh, logic disappears. That's why the person may not know what's happening. That right. part of the brain may be affected. There's a very interesting woman whose name I'm blocking on right now, but she, she, is, uh, she was having a stroke. She was a neurobiologist, I believe, and she has written a book on this, and I'm mm-hmm. blocking on the name uh, and her name but it was recent within the last few years and fascinating reading or to listen to this woman, she was having a stroke and as a neurobiologist, Mm. she, she had incredible knowledge of anatomy and everything else. And she was aware of things that were happening and to read her story or to listen to her story about what she was doing and how she was doing it. And then how it was diagnosed and her, Recovery and everything else—it's fascinating read. Maybe we mm-hmm. can find that name and put it on uh, the site at mm-hmm. the end of, of the show. But it's a great read, and I think very important. We we need to be more aware of many things, and stroke is one of them. Mm-hmm. And there there are. Remember when we spoke with Doctor Philip Enti uh, in one of the early episodes? Uh, he was one of the pioneers of getting people medication quickly if the stroke was recognized within a certain amount of time that they could be given medication if it was a special type of stroke the clot type of stroke rather than the hemorrhage they were able to inject medications into the bloodstream to break up that clot and save people so this is even more of an important reason why i'm bringing it up today just to be aware and do those three simple things you know ask somebody to speak to smile and to move an arm. And of course, as you're asking them these things, you're looking at them and you're seeing, is this person acting abnormal? Do they need to be lying down? Uh, Are they losing consciousness? A number of things like that. So just be aware. Mm, Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. So let's move forward into the last part of our show. And in the, uh, inside the doctor's bag, uh, we talked uh, about being current, you know, and giving things. We talked about the norovirus. Uh,
0: Ooh, that vomiting virus.
1: The vomiting winter bug. Yes. Uh, I know you like that. <laughs> I wish I could see you right now. Are you bouncing?
0: Huh? <laughs> no, I'm not uh, bouncing so much okay. now. I'm waiting for the new one.
1: <laughs> okay, well, I don't think this is going to be this, but I do want to do an honoring right now. I said that the third part would be an honoring. And this is... Uh, February is African-American History Month, Black Mm -hmm. History Month. And I thought it would be interesting just to uh, give some shout-outs to uh, physicians or scientists, uh, doctors that uh, made contributions uh, to the field of medicine as African-Americans. So I just wanted to name a few and uh, give them some credit. There's a uh, Charles Drew. Uh, and this is going to be a little bit of reading for me, but in 1940, he was, uh, he was recognized as helping to develop, uh, plasma, uh, and blood studies so that people can actually save blood and give blood. So Mm -hmm. during the wars, this was very important to be giving bleeding soldiers, uh, blood plasma. And he was recognized for this. He became the head of the red cross at one point. And this is back in the 1940s. Wow. Yeah. There's a Daniel Hale Williams. He was the first uh, doctor to do open-heart surgery. This was back in about 1893.
0: 1893?
1: 1893. 1893, right. Uh, he, what happened was he was working, and somebody came in with a stab wound to their chest, and he decided that he needed to go in and do open-heart surgery on this person. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Wow. Another person is uh, Mary Eliza Mahoney. She was the first African-American nurse, and this was in 1878. Wow. This is at at least in this country. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, James McCune Smith in the 1800s. in the 1800s, he was the first American, uh, Afro-American, to earn a medical de- degree.
0: Hmm.
1: So I thought that would be kind of interesting to honor that. Oh, yes. Uh, Rebecca Lee Crumb- Crumbier. Uh, she was the first uh, American, Afro-American woman to get a medical degree. This <laughs> was in a- 1864. Wow,
0: that's yeah. wonderful.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then uh, William Augustus Hilton uh, was the first black doctor to teach at Harvard. And interestingly, this is back in the 1920s. Um, and what do you think he taught?
0: In medicine?
1: Mm-hmm. He taught it in the medical school at Harvard.
0: Ooh. I don't know. I wouldn't have a clue.
1: Yeah. Uh, he taught preventative medicine and hygiene oh, my gosh! for a number of years.
0: Hmm. Amazing.
1: And then I want to uh, add another person, and this is on a more personal note. Uh, when I was uh, doing my internship and residency in uh, Los Angeles, there was a doctor there, uh, an African-American doctor named Gregory Murray. And he was a surgeon. I was doing a surgical internship and residency. And through our residency, we would assist a lot of these attendings, which meant that we would go and meet their patients. We would do exams on their patients. And then we would uh, go to the operating room with them. We would assist in the surgery. And then we would assist in following up as they were healing. And this is part of how we've always learned in medicine. You follow attendings and they teach you things. And he taught me something very important that I want to honor today. So give him Dr. Gregory Murray, a little bit of an honoring. Mm. As you know, I always at the end of my talk, honor my teachers and healers. And so I'm doing this now in the part of the talk (laughs) rather than just as a salutation. Um, you mentioned earlier about scheduling surgery time. Mm-hmm. In a hospital, there's only a certain number of surgical suites where you can you can do surgery, and there is a large number of surgeons. There are orthopedic surgeons wanting to do bone surgeries and hip replacements, and there are ear, nose, and throat surgeons doing tonsillectomies or uh, doing something in the ear. There are eye surgeons. There are general surgeons taking out an appendix. There are heart surgeons doing a cardiac transplant. And there are certainly emergency trauma surgeons uh, doing whatever they do. So when, uh, when people want to do a surgery, they have to go to the surgical team and they have to put in for time in the surgical suite. And that time is booked for them, which means that when that area is booked for them, no one else can use it. So it's very precious when you get that surgical time. And everything else is based on that. Well, one day, uh, Dr. Murray, who is uh, very smart, very quiet, very unassuming, uh, and a great person, a great surgeon, I was meeting him at about 5, 5.30 in the morning so we could do our surgical rounds. And what we did was he would always go in to see his patient uh, before he was going to operate on them. And he would always talk to them, say hello, let them know he was in a good mood and, <laughs> you know, wishing them good things and telling them not to worry. And that was our routine. We would go in and make sure everything is okay and tell them what's going to happen a little bit. And then we would leave and go on to the next. And then we'd eventually do our surgeries. Well, one morning uh, we walked in and this me- gentleman was having an elective surgery. I, he had a problem with his gallbladder and he had kept having episodes of gallbladder attacks and when you have those episodes of gallbladder attacks it's not usually a good time to operate it, you want to let the gallbladder calm down and then take it out unless it's a true emergency and then you have to operate so you try and wait in between and then you schedule an elective um, surgery excuse me and scheduled the elective surgery. So we had the time and he came into the hospital scheduled for the elective surgery. We walked in and uh Dr. Murray said, "How you doing today? Ready?" And the man had a very scared look on his face. And he said, "Doctor, uh, I don't feel right today. I'm not in any pain or anything, but I'm just really scared about this surgery." I think something is going to go wrong. Uh, I'm not positive about it. And he went on for a moment or two and Dr. Murray listened to him, tried to talk about it for a few moments, seeing what was wrong, seeing if we could figure that out and relieve his anxiety. And he was unable to relieve the man. He said, you know, I, I I think something's going to go wrong and I'm very scared. So Dr. Murray at that moment said, we're going to cancel your surgery. Wow. And and that, and that means that giving up that time that was so precious in the surgical suite and everything else. And, you know, I walked out with him and we canceled the surgery and we sat and talked for a few moments. And I said, tell me about that. What's, you know, I mean, we could have done the surgery, you know, he was ready. This is the best time and everything. He said, more important than doing the surgery is to listen to your patients. And if they feel for some reason that something is not right, then you have to honor that. Mm. And he honored that and taught me to honor that. And, uh, that's been part of my entire career in terms of, uh, taking care of patients and working with treatments and things like that. Uh, you have to listen to the patients and honor their fears and concerns. You certainly can address them, but uh, they need to be honored. So that was very powerful for me. And I thought, uh, you know, it'd be interesting today in uh, Black History Month that I would uh, say hello to him, although he passed away a few years ago, uh, just to uh, maybe touch base, according to Dr. Kumes. Uh, David Cumes, the urologist in Sangoma. It's always good to talk to ancestors and past people. So during this uh, time, I'm sending out that shout.
0: (laughs) That's a wonderful shout. Wow, what a fantastic influence that was. It was great. (sighs) That's so good.
1: It was great. It was, you know, one of the great things about uh, learning is there are many places you learn. When you know you're going into a lecture hall and somebody is going to be giving a talk on something, you're probably going to learn something. When you're in uh, doing a surgery or some kind of a procedure, you know that you're going to learn something, especially as a medical student Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, or uh, an intern or a resident. But one of the things about it is you never know who is going to teach you something and and what lesson it's going to be so i was grateful to that gentleman who expressed himself and i was grateful to dr murray for uh, uh teaching me that mm.
0: that is uh, a very very precious lesson the, the having had that opportunity but having yourself bring it right through your whole career
1: it was powerful. Yes. You know, it yes. would have been just as easy to say, oh, don't worry about it. We'll give you some medication. You won't have anything to worry about. The surgery is already scheduled. We want to get you better, and we don't want you to be hurting mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are many reasons to try and convince this gentleman to have the surgery. Absolutely. Now, was, now was the time. They were there. Everything about it was perfect, and the guy was in good health at that moment. There was nothing mm-hmm. wrong. The only thing is he had that feeling.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh and um you know what's what's interesting is I've heard of so many uh doctors that just go straight ahead and they say no it's okay don't worry and as you said you know they just go ahead with the surgery and it's so wonderful to hear of this gentleman that just I mean really listened mm-hmm. because you know like in the holistic world I'm sure you know but when someone is already carrying the fear and the anxiety it it the healing even after the surgery the healing process will also become slower and it's almost like um uh what is that saying uh Glenn, where um if you say something will happen that it will happen there's a saying mm.
1: maybe we'll add that to the uh website also along with the name of the doc the author
0: mhm
1: yeah mm-hmm. uh, Certainly there are many ways that that could be said. Sometimes I'm very careful in the way I'm
0: thinking
1: (laughs) (laughs) before I express myself. Uh, There is one saying that I've always loved Uh, once I learned it was um, never say anything unless you can improve upon the silence. (laughs) (laughs) And that's helped me and actually saved me in many situations. So there are times that I try not to say too many things. Mm. Except during inside the doctor's bag.
0: There you go. (laughs) Then you better be saying some
1: things. (laughs) We have some good shows coming up.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to them. Um, There was a comment that came in. Thank you for sharing that story. Is that a common practice to listen to your patients in that kind of situation?
1: I think it's becoming more and more common. Doctors just, you know, no doctor wants to have a a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. And if, if they are doctors that listen to their patients and if they care about their patients, just in general, they're going to be open to certain things. That doesn't mean they won't try and take a moment to say, okay, let's just talk about it for a few minutes. I know you're fearful of this but what is your fear you know they may talk to them and say what is your fear and and sometimes you can relieve the fear and move forward Uh, but it is it is something that is in everybody's practice and it happens in very subtle ways also you may uh, go to the doctor for some kind of a medication and the doctor will give you a medication uh, and feels that it's the right one but you may have had a bad experience with it and you have that conversation and communication, and even if the doctor feels, well, I don't care if you had that experience, this is the medicine you need, uh, that doesn't happen as much anymore. There's, mm-hmm. there's usually ways that you can get around that or to do something a different way, uh, and sometimes you've got to have communications both ways. For example, when somebody comes in and they have something that's obviously a virus and they want an antibiotic for it, and we know that antibiotics don't work on viruses. Uh, sometimes the doctor needs to communicate and the patient needs to listen from that point of view. If they can't, they have to come to some kind of a conclusion for the sake of both people. But uh, yeah, I think more and more the doctors are listening to larger and larger degrees.
0: Mm. Well, that's great. That's good news for all of us.
1: It mm-hmm. It is. Uh, we're learning that, and we're learning that from our patients and from other doctors that mm-hmm. teach that now. There's more and more doctors that are teaching other doctors to be that way. You know, the medical schools are starting to learn uh, approaches to speaking to patients and listening to patients.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, we've lost your visual for a moment there, Glenn. Again? Yes. Like. Hmm. We only have a little square man, a little uh, uh, image of a, <laughs> a, <little laughs> square of a man, man <laughs> in a little square on the screen. So I, get, I think your video didn't turn back on. Try to well, give it a little click.
1: I'll give it all sorts of clicks.
0: <laughs> not too many. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we have to, you know, I'm starting to think more. Everybody knows now that we're on podcasts and I know as much as people would like to see my little square man view, <laughs> <laughs> it's not there.
0: It's not there. It's and
1: just a voice.
0: There you go. And it seems like your vi- your visual just doesn't want to come back to us right now.
1: I just don't know what to do. I'm clicking, toggling, moving. Maybe I'm disappearing.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. <clears throat> no. You're, you're becoming like that whole cyberspace energy now, huh?
1: Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, maybe we're coming to the end of the show but, anyway. So Yes. So I would like to thank uh, all of our listeners, viewers, and people commenting, sending in comments. We always encourage people to send in comments uh, and suggestions for other shows and topics. Uh, we'd like to continue the Magical Medical Tour uh, for your benefit. So please feel free to get in touch with us. Uh, I want to thank my healers and my teachers and uh, Christina. And I look forward to seeing everyone next week as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I'm wishing you all optimal health.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman. It was fun peeking into your doctor's bag. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at ten thirty AM Pacific Standard Time, one thirty Eastern Time, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at eleven AM Pacific Standard Time, two PM Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing Into Awareness with Anatara. You can also contact doctor Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman on Twitter at Glenn Woolman and of course through his own website glennwulman.com where you can learn about his metaphor square breath it's not really the poo breathing but it is (laughs) amazing Um, an amazing technique thank you and until we meet again namaste